Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Crepia, and he is Aaron Fentress, and we will go over the latest for the Ducks coming off another win. This one, a somewhat, somewhat in command kind of style game over Washington State, thirty-eight twenty-four. Uh, had an opportunity to really pull away multiple times. Eventually, did. Uh, had an opportunity to make it a three-score game late. They did. And then Washington State trimmed it back down to two scores anyway. So we'll get into that and how that game went. The latest in the college football playoff rankings, which is why we're coming to you on this Wednesday. Uh, we're waiting until the latest rankings came out. And alas, they really didn't change much at all. So we will get into the rankings and what it means at this point as we draw closer to the end of the regular season. A few other takeaways from the Washington State game, and of course, get into this week's matchup between the Ducks and Utah, a ranked matchup, and highly, highly likely the first of two meetings between these teams in a 14-day span, or really 13-day span. So we will get into a number of topics here in this week's edition of the program. Aaron, your takeaways from Oregon's 38-24 win over Washington State. You know, it seemed like one of those games where, you know, it, it was close, air quotes a little bit, but you always felt like Oregon was in control. Even when it was 14-14, I still felt like Oregon was the better team and they would eventually pull away. They didn't quite pull away as quick as I thought they would. It was 24-17 with eight minutes to go in the fourth when Oregon scored to make it 31, I believe. Um, so, you know, it, it was a relatively close game, but I felt like Oregon was in control. Yeah, I, I really agree. I mean, I, even if, like you said, even if 14-14, just because – yeah, they were moving the ball offensively. Yeah. It wasn't – it was turnovers. It was – It was, and it wasn't that many turnovers. Yes, there were two fumbles in the game. But ultimately, it, it wasn't as though they were playing so poorly and like Washington State made this valiant, this massive defensive stand or something, and that's how they got the right. ball back, and that's how they're – no, it was just it – was, it was a 14 nothing game that then, all right, you know, a couple breaks go the other way, and – it's 14-14, and Oregon gets the ball to come out in the second half, and thanks to a long kickoff return, a couple of nice plays, they they come right down and score. And you never really felt like, even when momentum, per se, was in Washington State's uh, sideline, and they were certainly energized, no, no question right. about it. But even then, it was just like, but do you really think that they're about to stop Oregon <laughs> right now? Like, yeah, that, that was the part of it. It was like, did you really ever feel like, well, this game's really about to shift? Like, 
No, nah. it really, it really didn't. Um, and that's the thing. Like, and and look, not discrediting Washington State in that. I think they are a solid team. I think they're a good team. I don't think they're a great team by any stretch, but I think they're a team that probably is going to end up getting at least the six wins. And given everything that that team's been through this season, highly commendable, and that they have some talent, and that they're maximizing the talent that they do have. Because, again, if you want to go by recruiting rankings or which number of things, but the bottom line is, forget about recruiting rankings at this point. A lot of the players on that team are four- and five-year players, if not six-year players. Right. That's that's the mainstay of their defense. That's some of the mainstay, um, particularly on the offensive line for their offense. And they're two lead receivers. So recruiting rankings are relevant now. That's just a program that had older players other than their quarterback at this point because, yes, they brought in a grad transfer, but otherwise. Older players who've been in a similar system for a long period of time. And it's working for them. But when they're going to face a vastly more superior, talented team, that's going to be a problem. And they were supposed to lose, and they did. <laughs> but they put up a heck of an effort. And again, I thought they were, again, I thought going into the game that they were going to be a pretty good team. I think they are a pretty good team. But I just think Oregon is the better team. And it showed throughout the course of Saturday's game. I, I really didn't think there was, I didn't think there was anything that Washington State did that was significantly better in any particular area. Their passing game, their passing game is better. No? Yeah. But their passing game, but it comes it comes at kind of like the the in the equilibrium of they you know with their offense that that's what they do. And that you know with their offense that they run certainly more than an air raid, but that they don't necessarily run all that much or all that well. Um and that's the one thing I think that in the when we look back on not just the season for the screwiness that will be at Washington State with with Rolovich and all those things, I think there's a chance that that Borgie and McIntosh in time, like when again when you have more time to even reflect on, I thought going into the season, frankly, they'd be more productive than they have been. I think that that that's going to be one that has a chance to kind of people are going to look back and go, man, they really didn't get as much as they could have out of those guys, did they? But again, that's their offense. That's the way it goes. And and Borgie does get used a lot in the pass game, don't get me wrong. But I just thought that there was a chance this year, a chance that they would run a bit more than they have. Because they do have talented running backs this year. They do. And and I thought they would use them a little bit more. That said, when they used them uh, on Saturday, a lot of them, a lot of it uh, was to assist in pass protection. Uh, because Kayvon Thibodeau was putting on a one-man clinic at times and chipping at him and trying to throw some additional blocks at him was part of it, using uh, the running backs to throw a couple of passes to the running backs, not a ton, but a few, uh, to get around Thibodeau was one of the ways that Washington State was trying to neutralize uh, the best defensive end in the country. So that was part of it, but like I say, yeah, I, as a whole – you're absolutely right. Were they more prolific in the passing game? Yes. 
But that's but also at the what same they time, do. That's what they do. <laughs> that's yeah, what I mean, they that's do. like saying like, and they yeah, weren't dominant. Any any, any run and shoot in any air raid is going to be um, for one and two. For as much as they were and are, they threw for less than a hundred yards in the second half, <laughs> which that's really hard to do defensively against a run and shoot or air raid, which is why it stood out so glaringly because that's like I say, that's just really, really hard to do. That's really hard to do schematically. That's hard to do strategically. That's hard to execute when you're playing against a team of that style. I don't care if we're talking about it at the power five level, group of five level military Academy. It's just <laughs> to that point. Like to, to, it's kind of like saying you're holding a triple option team to under a hundred rushing yards. Right. Like that just doesn't happen. It, it, you just, when you're playing a team is going to, is so intent on throwing the ball that many times sooner or later, you can't cover for four and five and six seconds for 40 some odd passes in a game. And again, Oregon did a really, really nice job, particularly in the second half. Locking down in the passing game. So to the playoff rankings, because we know that's where people's attention goes this time of year. We will get to a couple of other takeaways a little bit, but we realize we're also now several days away from the game. So, but with the rankings coming out last night, Oregon holds at three. So really no real movement at all or no substantive movement in the top seven teams, Georgia, Alabama, Oregon, Ohio state. And then the Michigans kind of come thereafter along with Cincinnati your thoughts of Oregon holding at three this week and the greater landscape as the Ducks take on Utah this week. Utah, a ranked Utah team this week, a top 25. Still was in the top 25 last week, moves up a peg to number 23 this week. Well, it's fascinating how things change as the season goes along, which is why over-talking this stuff is usually silly, but that's part of college football is just talking it to death. But right now, where they are, and with Oklahoma losing, so now Oklahoma can't finish undefeated and so just wave their wave their hands and say, hey, what about us? If Oregon wins out, and I don't care if they win each game by one point, they're going to be in. Like, th- there's no scenario I see where Oregon gets gets bumped out by anyone, even Cincinnati if they're undefeated, because you know, we all know their schedule's whack. Oregon's is better, even playing in the week Pac-12 this year. Um, only one team would get in from the Big Ten. They're not going to get two in, and the one that gets is not going to be ahead of Oregon. They're not ahead of them now. They're not going to be ahead of them later. And if they were ahead of them, then Oregon would just be four. So we're just in that zone now where it doesn't matter what style points don't matter. Just win, win by one point the rest of the way and they're in. I think the, well, I think there's, there's two scenarios in which a big 10 East team could finish ahead of Oregon. But I, but to your point, I don't think there's, there's two big 10 East teams or big 10 teams in general who can finish ahead of them. I think Ohio state mathematically can jump at, can jump them. Right. But then they still be four. Right. And I right. think Michigan, if Michigan were to beat Ohio State, because at that point they both have wins over Ohio State and Michigan's would be more recent uh, for whatever that is worth. And that Michigan's loss to Michigan State, presuming Michigan State doesn't suffer another loss along the way here, other than to Ohio State, uh, will not be as bad as the Stanford loss, which could start to get worse and it already has gotten a lot worse, but could get even worse if they lose to Cal, if they, you know, lose to UCLA. So, so, so wait, if, yeah. if Michigan beats Ohio state, Michigan so, beats so Ohio you, state. So, so you think it's, East. so you think a team that doesn't go to the big 10 championship game, they can, could get in ahead of Oregon. They can. No way. Michigan can go to the big 10 championship game. No, I know they can, but 
Only, I'm, I'm, saying. I'm saying, they, I'm saying the Big just, Ten champion would, is going to get in. There's not going to be two teams from the Big right. Ten. Yeah, I, I said I agree. I'm saying I was saying that there was two scenarios whereby two teams, two different teams in the Big Ten East could jump Oregon. Not two in the same time. Oh, okay. I'm okay. Two that's what. That's what. That's what I thought. Saying, saying, it okay. could be. Oh, I'll say like, it could be right. Michigan. Right. right. I'm assuming that Michigan State doesn't pull an upset over Ohio State this weekend, just because sooner or later, and they have had one of the more remarkable seasons in the sport this year. If they were to do it. Oh my goodness, what a upending and that would be and and truly a remarkable story for Mel Tucker and company over there. But again, sooner or later, talent gaps do come into play sooner or later. And they have done a spectacular job. But again, I, I don't think it's exactly a reach to say that Ohio State is a more talented team entering their game this weekend. But that's beside the point. Right. For Oregon's purposes, yes. Couple of different teams out of Big Ten East, but yes, I agree with you. Only one of them ultimately survives the whole head to head round robin they're doing here the next few weeks. That's part of it. Yeah, Oklahoma's slipping up, but that guy, I, I, I was, I was the one pointing out that Oklahoma wasn't, uh, wasn't really living up to very much in the first place. So right. hardly a surprise there. I do think Oklahoma State. Could be a little bit of a wrench. A really? little bit of a wrench. Really? A little bit. A little bit. Well, because believe it or not, they're they're not the Oklahoma State of, of your by way of they actually play defense. Mm-hmm. Um they're they're not quite the Oklahoma State team that everybody thinks of, the Big Twelve team that many people think of, um, insofar as yes, they, they actually do play some defense there. So they've taken a little bit of a different tact and approach uh, to their season. But be that as it all may, that's They're not going to catch Oregon, though. You think they can they're going to catch Oregon? They're not that far out of they, it, though. They're, they're, they're as far, to me, they're about as far as you can be. Again, yeah, I know they read off the stat last night. The lowest the team has ever been at this point is ninth uh, to eventually make the field of four. They have a, that's with easy loo- game. A, that's with other teams a, losing, though. That's not... If everyone well, again, the, we know that well. Multiple teams out of the Big Ten East could lose, but Michigan and Michigan State could lose to Ohio State. That's that's moving up two pegs almost by default. So they could move from nine to seven, like no problem. And then you're talking about what if Georgia beats Alabama? Well, now you're going from and they move down at several pegs. At least so you're talking about Oklahoma four. State getting in. Not I'm, I'm, I was ta- I thought they were talking about oh, excuse me. I thought we were talking about Oklahoma State leapfrogging Oregon. Right. And I'm you, saying that really, they, there's when it comes yeah. to selection Sunday, there is going to be only so many teams in for the discussion. All right, Oregon wins out, does its thing. I'm talking about who's going to be ultimately in the final conversation. Well, if an undefeated George is there, we already know that's that's obvious. That we don't even need to discuss. Right. All right. That the foregone conclusion. If Georgia wins it all, what if Alabama upends them and and it's two SEC teams? Well, then they're both getting in. So that's that's a different matter. But just assuming for the sake of argument and ease and, and um, lack lack of complexity, Georgia just wins out, takes care of business, does its thing. Fine. Fine, fine, fine. All right. And Alabama, with a second loss, drops at least out of the top four. I mean, I, I don't even think they're firmly out of the conversation, but right. be that as it may, at least out of the top four. Okay. God, I want to get them out of there so bad. I'm so tired of Alabama. You've got a... 12 and 1 Oregon, 12 and 1 Ohio State. Presumably 13 and 0 
Cincinnati. We'll, we'll, we'll go to the extreme for the sake of the argument. The team that a lot of people are starting to wake up to that I've been talking about for a couple of weeks now that like everybody was throwing dirt on them like it's over and it ain't over is Notre Dame where they don't exactly have a very difficult remaining couple of games and they're sitting there at eight and again multiple teams in front of them could drop in successive weeks rather easily. And now they're sitting there with two easy games with Georgia Tech and Stanford left. They already have, yeah, they lost, but not badly, to Cincinnati. And they have a win over Wisconsin. And a win over Purdue, which, while certainly not phenomenal, is solid. Well, Wisconsin keeps winning. (laughs) Wisconsin's at a pretty decent spot at 15. That's even as a three-loss team. That's a valuable win for Notre Dame right now. That's not, certainly not a bad one. Mm-hmm. And realistically speaking, if Wisconsin beats Nebraska, beats Minnesota, that still hangs on Notre Dame's resume. They improve. Well, point is, is when that data point continues to improve, that further legitimizes Notre Dame's ability to keep moving up, moving up. So I'm talking about teams in the final conversation on Selection Sunday. All right, this team wins out. This team wins out. This team wins out. All right. Who else could be there at the end? I think Oklahoma State, Notre Dame, and potentially a two-loss Alabama, and yes, undefeated Cincinnati, would be all in that conversation of somebody might be getting in. Probably only one of them. But with the way the committee does the rankings, just to remind fans of this, because we're going to have to go over this several times as long as Oregon keeps winning, (laughs) the way in which it is done systematically, is they start it totally clean slate. The room selects and votes on their top six teams in no particular order. From that conglomeration and voting of who are the top six, they then rank out of that six who are one, two, and three. All right, well, under the scenario that we've outlined, probably <laughs> Georgia will be a runaway one. Then you have the conversation of, well, if you're in the one, two, and three conversation, well, then you don't have to worry about four, five, and six. There is no conversation to have. Well, what if we're going to throw the wrench of doomsday in there? What if Alabama does win? Well, now you've got two SEC teams, one and two. And now if Ohio State's math is just playing better than Oregon's, which by the end of the season, if they both went out, it will be. Now you've got Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State. All right, that's one, two, three. And so whatever order you want to put them, but they're one, two, three. All right. Now the conversation is about four, five, and six. Well, we know that Oregon will be in that group into the outline scenario that we have. Now who's with them? And my point is, is that when you get to Selection Sunday and who are you in the conversation with? And when you're looking for that four spot, it's not a who's in the top four and who are the other top four teams. It's who are the four, five, and six teams. And the resumes that you're head-to-head with on the final decision on Selection Sunday of who is the fourth team in and who are the first two teams out. And that's the scenario. That's the conversation. That's the, oh, my gosh, we're in a doomsday, what happens situation. And frankly, Cincinnati should be thinking along the same lines. 
Because to your point, yeah, their strength of schedule isn't going to be as strong. Now, they do get the benefit of playing one of their better games this week with SMU. And they do get the benefit of Houston actually sneaking into the top 25. So if they play them in the AAC title game, which they almost undoubtedly will, I think, at this point, then they can have two legitimate data points. I was actually borderline surprised that Cincinnati didn't slide this week because just by playing USF, their strength of schedule goes down rather significantly. And they weren't exactly convincing for most of that game. So having said all that, like I say, I'm just laying out the scenarios for folks of, again, we'll, we'll keep going about this for the next couple of weeks until, <laughs> until Selection Sunday as Oregon keeps winning games. But do I, I, do I tend to agree with you? Yes, if they win out, they're probably in. But. Yes. <laughs> but you can outline. But I'm, but I'm saying but. The but is there are scenarios that you can concoct, and it's not outlandish ones. We know that there's a couple of Big Ten East teams going to slide out of the way. All right, well, who benefits? Well, Notre Dame benefits. Well, Oklahoma State may benefit, assuming it wins and keeps winning. You start comparing what potential resumes could look like for four, five, and six in that final decision. I just, I just don't see how – like Notre Dame, they play Georgia Tech and Stanford. So their last game is going to be against Stanford, and they have no conference championship game to win to impress. Right. So I can't imagine right. how Notre Dame possibly moves ahead of Oregon. I, Oklahoma State's ninth. I can't imagine how Oklahoma State, they went out fine. They're not, I don't think they're going to But they that. could play Oklahoma twice, and back, or in Oklahoma and Baylor, for that matter. Potentially. True. But, uh, well, okay. Again, it's just that what is what is on Oregon's resume right now? The Ohio State win. We know that. All right. Frankly, the Wazoo win is going to at least hold up as long as Wazoo doesn't completely face plant here the next two weeks. And having a win over a, a winning team, a six-win team, those are valuable data points. Yeah, having wins over top 25 teams is also nice. And if Oregon wins out, it will end up playing Utah twice. And you hope that Utah hangs in the top 25 when it's all said and done. That would certainly help. Again, I've stressed before and I'll stress again. The best thing that can happen for Oregon right now is that Fresno State keeps winning. (laughs) And they need some... You need to be paying a lot of attention to the Mountain West right now. Because only in that league. Basically, they're, they're they're the fine cousin of the Pac-12, not just geographically, but in that screwy things happen. Fresno State has the head-to-head tiebreaker on both San Diego State and Nevada, who played each other last week, but is behind them, was entering last week, behind them both, in order to get in the Mountain West title game, i.e. have another data point and keep moving up potentially in the rankings. You, You need them to not only keep winning themselves, you need them to have their road cleared for them. They need a little bit of help. Well, you need Fresno State to keep winning to try and sneak back in the top 25 and give Oregon a valuable win. It's okay right now. It's a solid win right now, but it was better two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and on Selection Sunday, you want that data point to be in the top 25 if you can get there. And the only way I think it gets there is if Fresno State keeps winning, gets in the Mountain West title game, and wins the Mountain West title game. Well, it's not just as simple as, well, they just control their own fate and win and you're in. No, they need help. They need help right now. And so Oregon fans should be pulling for every possible scenario whereby Fresno State gets in to the Mountain West title game and wins. That would really, really help them. Because 
Otherwise, and you boy, oh boy, are you pulling for Stanford in the game this weekend? Holy smokes! You need Stanford to do anything imaginable. You need Stanford to be of uh, the greatest favor that David Shaw could ever do for Oregon is to somehow beat Cal and then miraculously, if if Christian McCaffrey has a ninth year of eligibility left and could come back to college in disguise, beat Notre Dame. That would be the single greatest favor that David Shaw has ever done for Oregon. Because it would give them, it would knock Notre Dame out of the conversation, and it would massively improve what is on paper a very bad data point for Oregon that is not going to get significantly better, even if Stanford does win a couple of games. Stanford will get Taron McKee back this week, but I don't think it helps. It's a start. Yeah, that's a yeah. start. Because <laughs> last week, <laughs> that was yeesh. that. I mean, we talk about Oregon's injuries. Stanford has been just beat up beyond beat up this year, and and I feel for them in a lot of way for the players above all. Uh, but yeah, for David Shaw and his staff, they have just run into a wall since that Oregon game, and that's those are all the important data points in the conversation. So again, we'll obviously chat about it again next week, assuming Oregon. Keeps winning. If they beat Utah, well then, again, we'll drill into it even more ahead of the game next week with Oregon State. And then again, the following week, if need be, ahead of the Pac-12 title game and all those things. So, But these are the important scenarios. Again, this time, you know, these are the moving parts of it all. And yeah, we also know the Big Ten East still has games to play, important games to play, and the moving data points along the way over there that will be very relevant to the whole situation but i think it's safe to say that at the top of the heap by way of the playoff rankings that george is going to go undefeated into the sec title game and then we'll see what happens with with georgia and presumably alabama in the big in the sec title game and we'll see what happens from there that that has a potential to throw an enormous wrench in the whole thing if alabama were to win it potentially Potentially. Because Georgia's offense is not spectacular. Their defense is otherworldly. <laughs> the, the Georgia defense is... um, It might be historic what they're doing right now. If they keep it up through a playoff run, it's pretty incredible what they're doing right now. So that's, again, down the road. But those are a little bit of some of the scenarios. I tend to agree with you, though, Aaron. So I'm at 100. percent I'm at 100. percent You're at 95. I'm at. I'm at. Prob- yeah, I would say if Oregon wins out, it's probably. Yeah, but you have to lay out the scenarios for focus. Well, can't, not- can't get there if the conversation goes for another two weeks, and they're just I- like, "Well, we didn't know what was happening. We guaranteed it was going to happen." It was like, I don't know. We're got to lay out that there are. There are doomsday scenarios. I have. I'm. I have I'm no problem with you doing that. Probably north of. Yeah, I, I would agree. Probably around the 90, 95% area. You know, Georgia's allowing 7.6 points per game. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why I say it. Uh, that's yeah. And the point differential, the point differential between what they're scoring and what they're allowing is one of the largest point differentials they're in average, college they're, football They're allowing <laughs> 2.5 yards per carry and 5.3 yeah. yards per pass attempt. Mm-hmm. Jeez. There's a reason... Reason why um, one of their interior defensive linemen is still on the board for Heisman consideration. Wow. <laughs> this, yeah, they, they are um, 
they're really good. They're they're unbelievably good on the defensive side of the ball. So again, obviously lots of games to go though across the country, even with only a couple weeks left in the regular season. They've got Charleston Southern this week. Well, yeah, again. Well, it, they but look if you wanted to say, oh, but what were they doing in September? That's a losing argument for the Pac twelve, I have to tell you, because Georgia got its toughest games out of the way in the month of September. So Yeah. Uh, you know. And then again, they still have to play the SEC title game at the end. So yep. let's give it some time. But to get back to specifically for the Ducks, anything that is starting to trend or things that weren't necessarily there three weeks ago, a month ago, earlier in the season that are starting to emerge, like Byron Cardwell at the running back position, like what we were talking about again several weeks ago, where can this team be elite? Where can they be separators? Things on the defensive side, anything like that beginning to stand out to you? The running game has really shifted, especially with Brown starting to take off as a runner. And then I've been waiting all season to see another running back emerge, especially since Verdell went down and Cardwell has slowly been introduced into the offense this past week. He only had nine carries, I think, right? Nine for, hold on a second here. Was it nine for 90? Is that what he had? Yeah, nine for 98. Mm-hmm. But he, I'm, I'm going to bring up a name I'm sure you've heard, but he reminds me of Jeremiah Johnson, who played with Jonathan Stewart in terms of his patience, the way he throttles down to let the blockers get to their spots and let the blocking develop and then burst. It's just, I love that type of patience, especially, I mean, seeing a true freshman too is pretty impressive, but that's how Jeremiah Johnson used to run. He was just amazing at getting to us, getting to an area, letting, slowing down just a little bit to let the block develop and then cutting off of that. And I see a lot of that in Cardwell. He has amazing feet for a guy his size. So he's emerging. Like I'm already, Die has another year left. Um, but they look like they'd be the one-two punch for next year. And then I, I think the, the running back position's in great hands moving forward as him being uh, a featured back at some point. And then just Brown is really just – he was very impressive running the ball this this last game. Again, it's just like with Cardwell in terms of his patience, his vision, sort of seeing things on RPO, sort of seeing when the, when the protection – excuse me, when the, um, the routes aren't there downfield and he decides, okay, now it's time to go, picking the spots to do that. Uh, so the running game to me has taken a, another – jump it's not it's still not necessarily elite but it's been pretty damn good yeah i think carball's been uh quite a positive the last several games a nice positive development and not just you know it's not just padding his stats you know it's one thing when he first got in with colorado and and without Lamman no less and like it's not a knock on byron carball like look he he only gets the opportunities he gets so when you get on the field it happens to be against a bad team without one of the best linebackers in the league. Well, you you can't help that. You just got to run and do your job. And he right. did. But to go from that, and to be clear, he had a couple of opportunities earlier in the season. He did get in against Stanford when CJ went down, and then Travis needed a couple of couple of plays off here or there. But ultimately, right. um, to be turned to against Washington and against Washington State in close games in the fourth quarter in meaningful spots, when they need plays and he's come through, that's reflective of, you know, you get into like situational usage and, and he even touched on a little bit after the game of like, well, what, did, what did these touchdowns feel like compared to the, you know, to earlier and stuff. And yeah, that players aren't dumb. You know, they recognize that there's a, there's a little bit of a significant difference between cruising through a defense 
against a bad Colorado team and a lopsided win versus fourth quarter of one score game, pretty big spot, November playoffs, all the, you know, all these other things going on. So yeah, he's, he certainly has been a, a really positive development and important to, to being able to take a little bit of the workload off of die, who is still putting forth a massive amount of a workload. <laughs> like, I don't think we should lose sight of that. He is still touching the ball a whole heck of a lot. Um, yes, as much as Byron Carwell has brought to the table, Travis Dye is still doing a ton of work out there. Uh, you know, 18 carries for 88 yards and, uh, you know, leading them in receptions with 6 for 25 and a touchdown and a lot of pass protection in particular oh, he's, where he's still the you know, guy. He's, he's yeah, he's he's still out there a whole heck of a lot. So, again, that's been a positive. Uh, I think that you, you mentioned Brown, his decision making for the last month has taken significant strides, significant strides. You know, I think obviously earlier in the season, it goes without saying, I think there were certainly fans who were looking for any wrong decision to pounce and mm-hmm. declare that absolutely unequivocally he was no good and needed to be benched and every which other thing. Now, well, boy, those that that chorus has quickly gone silent. And lo and behold, as the season goes on, Players and teams can get better. Players and teams can get worse or be inconsistent. This is a player who is getting better within the system. And it's melding together. He's performing better. And systematically, as an offense, what Joe Moorhead is doing with him is working better and putting him in even better positions as they have more games together, they have more practices together, they have more meetings together. The plan is coming together and how to use the pieces best, and the pieces are executing the plan better than they were. And it's it's working very, very, very nicely. But he didn't put the ball in jeopardy at all. At all this past week. I mean, Washington State never had a shot at an interception. Not really. I don't even, I'm not even sure they really got a hand on a ball, quite honestly. Like, even on a tip, they just one part of it. And yeah, there are a couple of shorter throws, don't get me wrong, by way of like check downs or other things, or because I think it faced pressure a couple of times. But that's done really well. But I think to the to me, the biggest thing from a compared to the start of the season and what has happened the last two, three, four games, that's the biggest trends. That means that that has the longest staying power in terms of the next several weeks. The emergence the of offensive extra power. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I say the, 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 the lines of scrimmage is just, it, we saw it a little bit earlier in the season, certainly on the offensive line, but it seems like no matter what, no matter how you shake up that snow globe, this offensive line comes out the other side where it's, it's, it's incredibly impressive in that look, this is not an offensive line that has a Panay Sewell. It doesn't have, not just Penny Sewell, it doesn't have Jake Hansen. It doesn't have Shane Lemieux. It doesn't have Calvin Throckmorton. It doesn't have those guys of the 2019 team, or for that matter, 2018, who were bonafide long-term starters and future NFL players. 
Now, I'm not saying that none of these offensive linemen are going to play in the NFL. Don't misunderstand me. A couple of them might in the long term. They might end up getting there. But these are not necessarily household names. And they're most definitely not first-round picks. And they allowed two tackles for loss last week. One on a sack where, like, look, hey, Wazoo just dialed up the pressure there and absolutely beat them on that play. No question about it. Pretty much across the board. The only other one was on a screen pass. <laughs> that was it. It was, the, was it. was it really in the backfield. It was a defensive back making a fine read on a screen that just didn't totally have a chance to fully set up yet. That was it. Two tackles for loss against a, a Wazoo defense who that's the fewest that has had against a non-triple option team in five years. Again, th- and this is not, th- this is, this isn't a- an offensive line loaded with first and second round picks doing this. So what they're doing both from player standpoint, schematic standpoint has been superb and has obviously been really good all season, but that really stands out. That obviously bodes well going into a game against the Utah team, who's particularly stout against the run. And you could be playing them twice again in 13 days. And an Oregon State team who has you know, made an in-season change of defensive coordinator. And on the other side of the ball that we talked about again throughout the course of earlier in the season, what can they do elite? What can they do that separates? And I said, well, the front seven may if, you know, once Thibodeau gets back and once these guys get healthy and, oh boy, <laughs> what's... What's happened the last couple of weeks here uh, with with that particular group has been, my goodness, uh, and they're going to need them. They, they've needed him the last two games, and they're going to need him the next few games because obviously he's operating on a whole other level, and really the front seven as a whole has done a spectacular job. Those those to me are some of the trends, but it starts individually. I think it probably does start with Cardwell by way of. Obviously, he just wasn't playing in September. Mm. But collectively, I think the lines of scrimmage is where they're starting to separate themselves. Because, again, we'll go back to whatever, what were our conversations two months ago. What can they do elite? Well, right now, they're pretty damn elite running the ball and they're pretty damn, and protecting, and they're pretty damn elite stopping the run right now. Certainly compared to where they were in September. Right. That's, that's going to be the identity of this team. Running the ball and stopping the run. And they're playing a team this week who is built to stop the run and I won't say only run the ball. They're they're a little bit of a more evolved Utah offense, but this is very much of a strength on strength sort of style of game. Have they solved their issues against twelve personnel for you yet? They showed massive improvement in that way against Washington. We'll find out if they have this week. With uh, with Utah, um, I bet Mario was just tired of you bringing that up and got all this well, was the, tight ends off the room and room and said, "Listen, man, I'm tired of crap you bringing this up every damn week." Well, or, sorry, to, got, uh, got his defense, defense together and yeah. said, "I'm tired of him bringing this up." When they come out in twelve personnel, we're going to dominate these guys. Well, the the has gotten a laugh with me over the course of the season, but I, I said I said to him at the Washington game, I said, "Look, I'd be remiss if after talking about it with you, you know." Basically all season, if after your best performance, that I didn't bring it up and say, okay, so where did the improvement right. come from? So, and they did. And, and I wrote it. You know, they, again, that doesn't mean a link to me whether they do well or not one way or another. If they're not, I say, what's going on? And 
when they eventually do get something corrected, I say, okay, how do you correct it? Why did it happen? And right that it happened. Like, okay, yeah, it's, it's the job. So, That's but right. yeah, they did a, they, they did, they made a spectacular improvement there. A part of it overwhelmingly was health. Let's not kid ourselves. No, coaches don't like making those kind of excuses because then it gives the players excuses and it acts like excuses. But it's real. It's real. because Why is it real? Because a couple of the players who were playing in the first four or five games, six games, when Thibodeau in particular and Funa and Jackson and Swinson, when all those guys on the edges who are now mainstays and have been healthy for the last several games, the guys who are filling in for them, one of them hasn't even seen the field the last couple of weeks. And he was playing like 40 plus snaps a game early in the season. And the um, one of the other ones who actually started to play well with more time went from also playing 30, 40 snaps a game to playing a far more situational role of probably five to 10 snaps a game. That's the difference. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very big difference. You have two guys who are asking to basically play almost the entire game who are now playing a combined eh, 10, 12 snaps. Big, a little bit of a difference. So yes, that's, that's. <laughs> Part part of the factor to be sure, but they've also made some schematic adjustments that yes, that with those healthier players and better players. So again, helps. That's a big part of it. But we'll come into play here against Utah. We'll come into play against Oregon State for that matter. So uh, they'll they'll have to turn to it several times and in varying capacities because it's not as simple as yeah they throw multi tight ends out there and just do the same thing that everybody else is doing. Utah does it in a, in a little bit of variety of ways, but we'll get into that a little bit more in a second. Anything a cause of concern for you after the Washington State game? Anything that stands out where you go, all right, yeah, they won, they won, they were pretty convincing, they were never really in jeopardy, but, yeah, there's this slip you know, some, something to either nitpick or something to say, all right, yeah, there's still something kind of underlying here. Yeah, I mean, not, I mean, they are who they are. They've clearly gotten better, as we talked about, in certain areas, but they're still finding themselves in – Close games against decent teams. By close, I mean one possession in the fourth quarter, one possession in the second half. Um, and, you know, as I was saying earlier in the season, the more games you play like that, you open yourself up to a loss. So, you know, if, if they play the exact same way they played against Washington State against Utah, that's going to be more trouble cause, because Utah is more a more complete team than Washington State. So that's the only red flag. But I feel like, you know, I feel like all season I've been like, yeah, but they're not winning by enough. Yeah, but they're not winning by enough. Yeah. And at this point, it's like that's just who they are. So that's my only thing is that, you know, if they get into a close game at Utah, let's put it this way. If it's a seven-point game in the fourth quarter at Utah, they're not going to pull away and get a three-touchdown lead. I, I don't believe it. It's, it's going to come down to a final possession for, for one team or the other. So that's that's the only thing because all that matters right now is that they went out. So in terms of thinking about can they win these next three games based on what we saw the last few weeks, they blew out bad teams against good teams. Excuse me, against mediocre teams, Washington, Washington State. It was still a game. Uh, I mean, Washington. I'm kind of Washington never looked like they could ever move the ball, so it was sort of like, yeah, that's not really necessarily a game, even if it's close. But I just sort of wonder if you know this team can't put teams away quicker. They're going to set themselves off or set themselves up for a potential upset the next three weeks. Yeah, uh, that said, other than Georgia, I'm not sure there's a team in the country who we couldn't say that about. Right, and I don't, and I don't, I don't disagree at this at this point about that. It's just that's the only thing we're. If all, all that matters right now is they win the next three games, yeah, right, yeah. Okay, so if I'm asking myself, are they going to win all three, three, three games? They're going to be favored in all three. Well, no, actually, they're the dog at Utah, right? Are they a mm-hmm. dog right now? 
Yep. Wise guys are stepping up. Uh, so, okay, so they're not going to be favored in all three games. Uh, so in, in terms of looking at it like that, can they win these next three? I came away from the Washington State game feeling, yes, they can, but they can also drop one. Yeah. And I'm not walking away feeling like this is a dominant football team that's got it in the bag. And I'm not sure, quite honestly, that the Wazoo game is necessarily going to change your mind on it regardless. The only thing that would have changed it was if they had gotten the 21 without the first fumble. If they got 21, it was just like, all right, it was 21, and then the second fumble happens, but it trims it back down to 14. And, you know, it, it's always in the two and three score range, and the quote-unquote game control is there very, very early. Yeah, I think that's probably the only thing that really shifts the conversation. But by way of end result, again, they had a three-score game. It happened to be with about 90 seconds to play. But it doesn't really change whether it's 21 or 14 at the end. It's because it came late. If it was 21 in the first half, yeah, I get what you're saying. That's about about the only way, though, that we really would be thinking in a terribly different light this week. Because the outlaw line, the line that came out early on this game, this week, had Utah favored before the Oregon, the, the Oregon Wazoo game ever got played. So perception out there in the betting markets was that Utah was going to have more money action and, and be the favorite team regardless. That's why I say I'm not sure that anything Oregon did against Wazoo short of, you know, just 35 plus point, you know, bonanza. I don't think Oregon really would have done very much to change perceptions there. And for that matter, if we're going to talk about like from a recency, like what have you done for me lately kind of standpoint, Utah didn't exactly put on a clinic against Arizona. You know, they, they had to hang around and, and let Jed Fish and company with a third team quarterback who was on a pitch count and basically had to, you know, just get through the game. That Arizona team hung around for a while. You know, kept, kept things. I'm not telling you that Utah wasn't wildly more talented because <laughs> every time I tune in the game, it's like, oh, it's close. And now it's just a very easy score. Uh, but yeah, but it happened. You know, they still were playing a competitive game against a team who they are wildly better than. Wildly better than. So it's it's hard to show up every Saturday in college football. It just is. You know, that's everybody. You know, other than right now, other than Georgia. You know, everybody else is, is, is having a little bit of a tough go to show up against the better competition every week. But that's part of the fun of it. And why we're able to go over exhaustively <laughs> playoff scenarios that are seemingly outlandish. But that's that's part of the fun. You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break. Before we get into everything with Utah just yet, uh, yes, we've obviously heard and seen much of the chatter regarding uh, Micah Pittman and his uh, potential future decisions here. I think we all see where it's headed, uh, but because we live in a society today where players can make decisions about transferring or anything like that, and it's not just outright statements and declarative, definitive absolutes. Uh, it has to be decoding of things um, or, or listening to movie quotes or whatever the case may be in any context. <laughs> but be that as it may, again, this isn't about – again, I think we see where it's all headed. So uh, what 
impact that may have, assuming that he, he is moving on here during the course of this season. In, in so it's not done it. yet? It's not a done deal? I We will find, frankly, by the time the podcast gets up here, it very well might be. I'm not saying His that dad isn't put up something on Instagram criticizing fans for criticizing a player for doing what's best for him. That may sound to me like it was a done deal. But I guess it hasn't been an official announcement. Well, there was also a bit of a Q&A in that regard where uh, someone had asked someone had asked basically is it possible that he plays out the season and and makes a move after the season? And the answer was, yeah, that's what they're sorting out right now or whatever. And you go, so you're telling everybody you're leaving a month and a half from now? Yeah, it's weird. That's what I'm uh, Yeah. So again, I don't, I don't try to, I don't try to act. I don't try to decode. Tell me what you're absolutely doing or you're not doing. And we'll leave it at that. And if you've moved on, you moved on. And best of luck. I don't care who, what player, what program. Anyway. If play, players are free to do what they want to do, whatever they feel like, just like, frankly, we are just like anybody in any industry is. If you think you have a better opportunity career wise, playing career wise or any which other thing, off and away you go. Best of luck to you, whoever you may be in whatever capacity and endeavor you're in. Doesn't mean a lick to me who's on a team, who coaches a team, who wins games, who loses games. So I'll I'll write the story whichever way it goes. I just haven't definitively put out there for us just yet because I can't say unequivocally because things aren't said in explicit definitive terms is all I'm saying. So I'm not trying to leave open a door that isn't there. I'm saying I'm only reading and seeing the same thing that everybody else is reading and seeing. So clearly he's, you know, he's frustrated. Frustrated, we'll say. Playing time as targets, and he's got 12 catches on the season. This was a big-time recruit for them. He probably obviously figured he'd be a bigger focal point of the offense at this point. Now, he's only a sophomore, right, because of the extra year, correct? So he has two years third, after this? Third-year sophomore, yeah. Yeah. And Johnson's going to be gone. Red's going to be gone. Who knows what Devin Williams is going to decide. Um, so it, it would seem to me that Pittman, or has he just fallen off that much to where Pittman wouldn't be one of the top two receivers next year? I guess I'm kind of – I guess I'm kind of a little shocked that he would make this decision unless he just knows that Ty Thompson is not good and I got to have a quarterback again who can throw. I don't <laughs> I don't think this has to do with projecting his own situation. I I think this is the culmination of Again, he tweeted after the game about being disrespected. And he wasn't targeted. I think this has to do with just his own feeling of a situation in the moment and not, again, I'm not speaking for him. I'm I'm just going by what he has put in the public discourse himself already. I, my, my read of the situation is that this is just, he won't be the first or the last wide receiver who wants the football and wants it more than he's presently getting it. And, and that's, that's every skilled position player, at every level of football, every running back wants to carry it 35 times. Every wide receiver wants to be thrown to 20 times. Every quarterback wants to throw the ball 30 to 50 times in a game. And that's, that's, that's the way it goes. So I, that's why I say it's to me, it's, it's not a, 
personal thing every every I'd said this much to Micah three weeks ago when we last last we spoke to him. I said how basically how is this because I pointed out to him that the UCLA game is a career high and it's either receptions or receiving yards, whatever it was. And when I pointed out to him, he goes, Really? And then he chuckled and I go, you laugh, but basically, you know, go back, you know, before the season we're talking about, well, you know, if you have this kind of bananas year, do you think about put forth big numbers and you talk about going to the league or something like that early? Do you, you know, do these things enter the, the mind in the off season and those sorts of things? And now that the way the season was going at that point, this is three weeks ago after the UCLA game, what basically where's what is this like at this point for you? What you know, because you can't everybody wants the ball, every receiver wants the ball a bunch of times, but I like I said to him, but not everybody can be Drake London. And right. get the ball ten and fifteen times well, a weekend when he's playing. Especially in this offense. And that's the point. And and yeah. and he pointed out, like, look, and he says, like, look, like, you know, if 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 guys here had the opportunity uh, to, to be targeted like Drake did, you know, and, and playing that kind of a style in a system, uh, you know, I, I guarantee you that there'd be guys around here who could probably put forth some numbers like that. But, you know, basically, we don't play in an air raid over here. So, you know, it's the way it goes. But, yeah, that's what the system is. So, and, and to be clear, it's what the system is here and now. But Joe Moorhead's offense is not absolutely unequivocally only this way. Right. It is this way with this quarterback. In this year, right. with this wide receiving right. core and this running back core and this offensive, this offensive line. line, yeah. If they had a quarterback who was less mobile and was more of a pocket passer, by way of comparison, I don't think that it would ever have a a statuesque. You're not going to run read option kind of plays with with somebody who has no mobility. So there's always going to have some degree of it, but a comparatively speaking less mobile quarterback than Anthony Brown, but a more polished passer than Anthony Brown and a more experienced, deeper, more proven receiving core that I think they probably pass the ball that much more. But the way that they're constructed right now, they are. And then when you have a lead back like Travis Dye and before him, CJ Verdell along with him or now Byron Cardwell. Yeah. You, you, Play to the strengths of the personnel that you have. And right now, that's what the strengths are. Will it change? Has it been different before? Yes and yes. But this is the way it is right now. So can he choose to move on? May he, again, I think we all know where it's headed eventually, whether that eventually is actively going on at the moment in real time uh, or sub, you know, in, in a time into the future. I think we know where it's headed. But I don't think that it has anything to do with reading tea leaves about personnel in the future or, or offense of the future or quarterback of the future or his own standing in the future on the depth chart here. I think this has to do with just the culmination of some frustrations this season because now, it's what he's said already. Now, he's he, he's playing – like it's not like he's not playing. Yeah, he played last week, but he beyond not being targeted last week. Again, I can't get snap counts because one television copy is brutally impossible to do that because it's not all twenty-two. You don't have a vertical shot to actually see right. what the jersey number is. Number one, though, it's somewhat easier to do than you might believe. Um, you pick up on players' uh, uh, body language, body, body language, gait. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
and some of the receivers have very distinguishable not just size and and physical traits but how they actually line up and whatever um so that that helps but when there's tight camera frames sometimes that's hard because you can't see the receivers who are out of frame like when they come out of commercial or something like that sometimes you just literally have no idea who the receiver was uh and then of course last week uh given that espn's production was uh circa 97 um that that really made it very difficult at times to pick up on who was on the field at any given time or even who what team was playing um I think Tecmo Bowl would have been uh, a more advanced wow. uh, technology uh, than Tecmo. than what some of you who were watching the game uh, over the television uh, were subjected to, unfortunately. But uh, you know that's that's the way it goes. You know, I I think pix- pixels running on a screen would have been you know Pong was te- a technological advance. <laughs> okay, it wasn't that bad. Come it on. was in Mem- Pong was actually pretty. Pong was actually pretty crisp because it was so simple. But my only thing with Pittman right now is he's still the punt returner. He's still playing. Yes, you're unhappy with your targets, but every receiver on that team is unhappy with their targets. Not one receiver on that team is happy with the passing game. There's no way they could be. And you're eight and one, right? Yeah, eight and one. Nine and one. I'm sorry. You're nine and one. And you're number three in the playoff uh, rankings. Like to be, not that it's going to be a huge distraction to the team and they're going to, you know, be, uh, you know, impacted by all this nonsense this week. But it's like, it, it just smacks of complete selfishness. I think we know where it's all headed. But alas, obviously, if he is to move on now at this time of the season, it certainly causes a little bit of a shakeup in the receiving core, a receiving core that we'll also see and hopefully get an update today on where John Johnson III uh, is entering this game against Utah but a receiving core that uh, was not vast in its depth in the first place, you know, deep enough to fill out a two deep. And that's all that matters. Uh, but when you start losing a piece uh, potentially in, and giant Johnson with the uh, foot ankle, lower leg uh, injury that he had last week, and we'll see what happens this week with him. And then also, you know, again, potentially uh, a departure here in Micah Pittman, all right. And again, I think we all know where it's headed eventually, but we'll see about, you know, in the, in the near term, not opportune timing. Uh, and I know, you know, Aaron, to your point, yeah, they, they find themselves where they do right now. Frustrations are somewhat understandable for any receiver uh, in, a, in an offense where, they, you know, again, every receiver wants the ball as many times as possible but not the most opportune of timing for anybody to be thinking about next season necessarily. Well, yeah, it's, it's horrible timing. He's still a contributor. He still plays. If, if Johnson's out, he's going to get probably even more time and maybe more targets. He's the punt returner. And you're 9-1, and one, ranked third in the college football playoff rankings. You have a shot to make the playoffs, even if your role isn't what you want it to be. I just don't understand the motive to be a distraction at this point and the, the whole cryptic, posting of things on social media with the the song or the or the dialogue from a movie and the four four out heart thing like it's just it's just silly to me because you still have you should still have something to play for with your teammates these opportunities don't come along that often and who knows what's going to happen in the next few games who know, i mean for all we know Pittman might have five catches for 85 yards and a touchdown in a playoff game we don't know it's not like he's not playing so it's, I just don't like the timing, and I think it's a bad look for him because it does smack of selfishness. I have no problem if he wants to transfer. That's fine. 
but you are a part of this team and this team has a lot to play for. They're five and four, four and five. Okay, maybe it doesn't matter as much, but man, they have a chance to play for something pretty special. I would think he could swallow his pride for a few more weeks and just get through the season and then do whatever he needs to do. There is certainly an argument to be made for those sorts of things in that perspective. The other, the devil's advocate position would be, well, if you're trying to put yourself, you, the only person who can act in your best interest is you. So if you're trying, if you have decided to move on, that to put yourself in the best position to do so would mean to remove yourself from a situation you no longer be, wish to be a part of and to ensure insofar as you can that you don't incur any kind of injury or setback before getting to a new destination. I'm not telling you it's what I would do, wouldn't do. It that doesn't matter. I'm not. I, it has nothing to do with it. Right. It's his decision, his life, his future, whatever he chooses to do. So again, for if fans want to be upset about it, that's you know that's. Whatever they want to do, they, I'm not going to speak to it. Just like what, fan, what fans do in a stadium, what fans view a, a, a player's decision, whatever. To me, do do whatever you wish. <laughs> be, be an aggrieved party to whatever extent you wish to be so. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, I do I understand that for all skilled position players, they want the ball. Yes, yes, I get it. Receivers are divas. <laughs> This is hardly a new phenomenon. Won't be the first. Won't be the last. That's part of the sport. That receivers always want the ball. That's the way it goes. Running backs always want the ball. Again, quarterbacks always want to throw a whole bunch. That's, yes, all part of it. So I, 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 it's not a matter of, I, I don't feel any one, I don't feel any particular way about it. He chooses to make whatever decision he chooses to make for his future. That's for him uh, and his family and et cetera. But in terms of for Oregon football, the remainder of the season, if he sticks it out for the remainder of the year, that's his decision to do. If he chooses to move on now, what kind of impact that could have for the receiving core, particularly if Johnny Johnson is unable to go at least this week against Utah. Well, you're talking about potential you know, additional shakeup there, but, but he would, he was not one of the, Starting group last week, yes, played, but beyond not being targeted, didn't have a ton of snaps either. Um, not a ton of snaps. Uh, realistically, if you take if you take Johnson out of the lineup, if you take Pittman out of the lineup for this week, you're going to probably Devin, Jalen Red, and I'm guessing Troy Franklin and or Chris Hudson. But those would be kind of your top four probably for the week. Uh, and then... Dante Thornton gets in there as well, uh, one of the other freshmen. So again, we'll we'll see how exactly it shakes out. Uh, but again, this is more. I think there's kind of two there's two parallel conversations. What's the short term impact? What's the long term impact? And the long term impact is different because, like you pointed out, Johnson and Red are moving on after because they're super seniors, and there could be additional attrition and churn at the position regardless. And you've got a couple of. Uh, commits lined up at the position. So the receiving group, the receiving room is going to overhaul. It's also been the position group. It's it's fair to point out that it's also the position group on the roster 
that has had the most uh, position coaches over the last four or five years. So, for particularly for older players like Johnson and Rebby point out, and I, I talked to Johnny about this back, gosh, I can't remember his preseason this year or at some point last year, but he's had how many different position coaches and coordinators over his career? Both him and Jay Red. But you had, you know, Michael Johnson was the receivers coach back in 18. You had Bo Knight for a couple of years, and now you've got McClendon. That's just over the last five years. And you've had two different coordinators. So that's a lot of different voices. Now, again, that's part of college football. Don't be wrong, but that position group has been more impacted on the offense compared to a running back room where it's been solid, a offensive line room where it's been solid, a tight ends room where it's been solid. Even if you want to go on the defensive side, a interior defensive line that's been solid. There's been a lot of continuity at a lot of the other positions. Whereas, and even, even if you want to get into inside backers, again, Ken Wilson's been here for a couple of years now. So there's been more stability at almost every other position, position group uh, by way of uh, uh, coaching and whatnot. And some of that leads to roster churn. Some of that leads to differences of, well, this coach recruited me. This coach views me in a different light. I get a, well, now I get another fresh start with this one. And how do they want to use me? How do they view me? What are their assessments? Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, People, you know, coaches always refer to in recruiting. It's about relationships. Well, yes, and when the, with the players you inherit, it's about relationships. And I'm not putting it on the coach. By the way, I'm not, that's not saying that this has anything to do with Brian McClendon right now. This is just pointing out that, yeah, when when things change, circumstances change on all sides. Changes for the coaches, changes for the players. And you know, again, I'm not speaking for anybody here. Just pointing out that that is a group that has seen more change than others, and how that can be a contributing factor to the conversation we are having here in general. Has that in, is that definitively a factor in any way, shape, or form for Mike Pittman? I, he, only he can speak to that, but be that as it may. In terms of this week for Oregon and Utah, Aaron, we'll end on this. Obviously a very big matchup, probably a prequel of a Pac-12 championship game matchup that comes 13 days later in Las Vegas, but that's for down the road, and we'll revisit that in due time. Your midweek assessment of the Ducks and the Utes, and as you've uh, already pointed out, yes, that Oregon, despite being the higher-ranked team with a better record, is the road underdog in this game. Well, I mean, when you statistically, they Utah stacks up pretty good against Oregon. They have a solid run defense, allowing 136 per game. They got a good rushing attack, which is what, 215 a game compared to Oregon's 227, but Utah's averaging 5.9 per carry, which leads the conference. And I would say that they have, I mean, would you disagree they have the best Pac-12 quarterback that Oregon will have faced? I don't even think it's close, is it? Um, it's a UCLA kid, DTR. I mean, Cam, Rise, Cam Rising is playing really well. I think the thing that, that, that separates him is that he just – he does not beat himself. Exactly. Two picks that's, all year. That's really the biggest thing with him. But to be quite honest, I, I think the I, I think the quote unquote best quarterback in the in the most 
traditional definitive sense is Tanner McKee. I think he is the best pro style and, and highest future potential at the position in the league this year. Uh, that Certainly that Oregon will play. I think in the here and now, it probably was Dorian Thompson-Robinson. But I just don't think there's necessarily a whole lot of really good quarterbacks in the league this year. Right. <laughs> I think but, basically, one way or another, you're pulling off basically linguistic acrobatics uh, to, to make an argument for a quarterback in this league where I just don't think this league has very good quarterbacks this year. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And of the mediocrity, this guy, you know, he's definitely up there in terms of, like you say, he doesn't beat himself. He does produce plays with his feet and with his arm. Um, and complimenting, he complements what they do. They want to run first. Then you have a quarterback who can run, make smart decisions, don't, doesn't turn the ball over, and can make big plays. I, I just, to me, it's, it's a really scary matchup for Oregon. Uh, I'm not saying Oregon's going to lose. But this team is clearly, to me, the best team they will have faced in the conference, especially with UCLA falling off. And it's the most dangerous setting on the road. And Utah's a tough place to play, although it's not at night, right? It's a day game? 5.30 Mountain Time. Okay, so it will so so it, so, it yeah, gets, it, it gets it, into it the... It will get dark. It will get dark. So, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Uh, I could totally see, absolutely 100% see them losing this game. I'm not saying they're gonna. I'm just saying that this is a, this is a, a nasty matchup for the Ducks based on what we've seen this season. Regardless of what happens on Saturday, I think the rematch in Las Vegas is a more conducive situation for Oregon. Regardless of what happens on Saturday. If they win on Saturday, then I say a rematch 13 days later and a quote-unquote neutral site, when uh, presumably they could be playing for their right to go to the playoff at that point, and Utah would be playing for, at best, a Rose Bowl bid. Not that that's nothing, but... Yeah, you said you said that like you said, at best, a Sun Bowl or something. No, but the point <laughs> is is that when they would be an 8-4 and four team looking for a 9-4 and four season and go to the Rose Bowl, I think... I think the way that we and or fans view going to the Rose Bowl in a non-playoff year is a little bit different than how 18 to 23-year-olds these days think of playing in the Rose Bowl. I think it matters. I think they care. I'm not saying they don't care at all. I think I think they do care. But I, I think the nostalgia element that older generations have for the Rose Bowl is not shared in exactly the same way. Even with Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that they wouldn't want to go or something. I don't think they're turning down the invite if they win the Pac-12 championship game. I'm just saying that there there is a difference still a huge whereby Yeah. And in a neutral setting, one team is 11 and 1 playing for a playoff bid and the other one is 8 and 4 playing to spoil that team's season. I think that the you know, there's just a different kind of situation, but that's for down the road. For this weekend, yes, it is a pit to play in. It is always a pit to play in. It is a brutally difficult environment. Loud 
beyond loud. <laughs> Uh, and I, I'm actually excited to go because after the uh, South End Zone reconstruction, uh, just to see what Rice Eccles, uh, what the new setup is, and how much uh, uh, better I certainly believe it'll be, and I've heard that it is. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. And just the, again, it's a great setting, uh, really super passionate fan base. Uh, again, all the elements to it should, should make for a really great game. Uh, and the game itself, I think, is going to be really competitive, one way or another. Um, I understand why Utah is the betting favorite in the game. I do. Not just because, oh, it's they're the home team or whatever. There are certain <laughs> there are certain expressions and, and things that get thrown around in like sports vernacular and become like commonplace like assumptions or or declarative statements. One of them is that, well, the home team gets three points in betting. Where Whoever coined that, wherever that came from, and how that has become, like, the go-to thing for everybody. <laughs> ugh. Because it's just not true. It's not universally true. There are places that do get three points. There are places that get none. I'm not saying Utah is one of those places that gets none, but to just constantly go to, oh, well, what it really means is that it's a total toss-up it's on a neutral field. It's like, not exactly. Not exactly. So you're, so you're, not, so you're not saying, when they, set, so saying out, when they set the lines, they don't take a, that into account by three points? Like, if you have two teams at the neutral side, and you say... Not universally. Not universally. It's like, oh, well, who's home? Hold on. Let's just put three over there. Like, no. Not a hundred percent, but my, my point being, if they play a neutral that, side, but the point is, is the way it's thrown around by fans, it's just like, well, they hear a line, it's just like, oh, well, they're favored by three. Oh, well, that just means it's toss up. It's just like, it's not exactly how it works, but be that as it may, be that as it may, I understand why because again, it's strength, strength on strength, they're strong run defenses, they always are. Again, we, we talk about rising, doesn't necessarily beat himself when you get into the turnover margin, those sorts of things, but. Some of these are very similar style, uh, similar sort of frame of reference and arguments and points as would have been made ahead of the 2019 Pac-12 championship game. Mm-hmm. I'm still shocked by that. And, uh, well, we know how that turned out. So, What was Utah favorite by in that game? Oh, gosh. I got to go back and pull it up. Was it a touchdown? Touchdown, wasn't it? I, I, be- I believe it was. I, I think it was like six, six and a half. If memory serves me correctly, there's been a few thousand things that have gone on since then <laughs> but 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 yes um bottom line i understand why i do that said the way that oregon is playing on again to me it's both lines of scrimmage because to me this is like the, it's a battle of, of clashing strengths of identities they are both still built around the line of scrimmage that's where it starts on both sides for both teams i'm not saying that utah is no good there i think utah is quite good there very good there I think Oregon is better there. I think Utah can tar and feather a lot of teams in the Pac-12 South on the line of scrimmage when they play them. I don't think they've played anybody quite as good to counterpunch them on the line of scrimmage as Oregon is. Having said that, other than Ohio State early in the season, where Oregon's defense obviously didn't have Thibodeau, 
and they were working in some guys in the front seven who have since gotten better or seen their roles change. And offensively, where the offensive line has obviously adjusted and had a couple of guys either go down or move positions, whatever the case is, since then as well. That was obviously a big test for Oregon. They haven't played anybody with quite the level of ferocity and intensity and caliber of play on the line of scrimmage as Utah either. So, yes, they have played Ohio State, and that is very significant. Not looking past it. But there have been some adjustments and changes since then, too. Some positive, some negative, some neutral. So, I I just think that, as a whole, though, that Oregon just has a couple of areas of either schematic or talent advantages in this area of strength that I do still see Oregon having an edge. Not a massive edge. Not a this is going to be a blowout kind of thing. I do think Oregon wins the game, and I think it's going to be really competitive and really close. But I, I, if I had to, I, my, my early week pick was, I think it was 31-24. I'm so far at the moment not inclined to adjust that very much, and if I do, it would probably be by knocking a touchdown off either side and saying 24-17. I do think Oregon wins the game. How do you see it? If I had to put money on it, I'd pick Oregon. I mean, I, there's no way around that. As, as many as many ways as I see as they could lose this game, like you said, there is there is talent differentials in a lot of areas. Uh, so I would lean Oregon, but man, just it's just one of those things where just the history of this conference. This just this has potentially bad news written all over it. Yeah. I know we agree. I mean. Oh, absolutely. Again, look, we, we, we can go back and feel the way about, uh, go, go back to, for example, you know, again, two, if you want to go back to two years ago, not just, you know, let's not just look Arizona at the Utah State, yeah. situation. <laughs> go back and look at, obviously it's, it's, yeah. it's the, it's, yeah, it's the bad memory for everybody, but it's the Arizona state game. You know, we're going into that game. Nobody was saying, Oh, pff, Arizona state's yeah. absolutely going to win that game. But they did. Now, there were certain situational awareness things of that game. And I was, again, we can go back to third and 16 and every which other thing. But point is, is, but there you go. And for that matter, last week they gave up a, the longest pass play since that play. Now, it wasn't a situational awareness move. It was actually a hell of a play by Jaden Delora <laughs> and what he did on that play to basically guide mm-hmm. the coverage away from where he was going to go with the ball, which, according to Verone McKinley III, is not something that Jane Delora did very much before that throw. Um, so you tip your cap to the other guy sometimes because the quarterback made a mm-hmm. more seasoned play than he had before on that particular throw. <laughs> That's it. Didn't happen again. It didn't mean a lick because Jamal Hill ended up knocking the ball out into the end zone for a touchback right thereafter. But point is, is... You know, they're playing it. The, Utah's always a veteran team. Always, always, always. They have veterans at key positions, at tight end, at receiver, at quarterback, at running back, at the inside linebacker positions in particular. Devin Lloyd is the best defender in the league, not named Kayvon Thibodeau. And because he'll probably play the entire season when Thibodeau will not, unless Thibodeau continues to keep this going for the next couple of weeks, and stack up some sacks here the next couple of games. 
I think Devin Lloyd wins Defensive Player of the Year in the conference. So he's really good. Like, really, really good. So Oregon's been really good at neutralizing some of the best guys, too. So it goes both. That's why I say you can't just say, like, oh, well, this side's got all this, this guy. This is going to be competitive. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a whole bunch of fun. I think Oregon wins the game. But I think this is going to be really competitive. Really competitive. Absolutely. And the sh- the shame of it is that is that they probably do face each other 13 days later, and Oregon has a tougher game in between, and the higher stakes to play for, and this really competitive physical game could certainly wear on both teams <laughs> Saturday. I think there's going to be a lot of play- there's going to be a lot of black and blues and bruises um, after this one. This by the way they play. So looking forward to it. Should be a fun one. And we'll obviously recap it next week and set you up for Oregon and Oregon State next week. As well, a reminder, if you don't subscribe to the podcast yet, what are you waiting for? We're almost at the end of the season. And <laughs> we're going to miss all our hot takes on the latest uh, playoff rankings if, if you don't subscribe. So come on now. Get on it. Subscribe to the Ducks Confidential Podcast wherever you get your podcast. If you already do, thank you. If you don't, get on it. And regardless whether you do or don't, make sure to give us a five-star review, like, etc., 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 feedback, comments, all those good things, because it helps others find the podcast as well so we will see you next week we'll go over oregon and utah wherever they may be in the playoff rankings if it's relevant or not anymore uh and what it means to the oregon oregon state rivalry game next week we'll see you then i'm james crepe he's aaron fentress take it easy